This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Art Labs podcast. Our special guest today. I can't believe it. Nobody will be able to believe this, but we have the one, the only Dom Hallen. Oh my God. Dom, how's it going, man? Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you, man. Uh, you know, you show up on my Twitter feed all the time. Um, and I was like, I got to talk to this guy. The world has to know about Dom. So thanks for uh, for joining us today. So Dom, give us the two-minute drill on what you're doing today. Um, I work at uh, HashiCorp. I'm on the uh, Terraform Enterprise team. So we work on, because Terraform basically splits into cloud, uh, which is a byproduct of the uh, open source product and Terraform Enterprise is uh, for on-prem uh, enterprises. So we're split across all the bits of Terraform. So so you're like a Terraform guru. Like there's nothing you can't Terraform right now, dude. Like right. you're well, that dangerous. I try. <laughs> I definitely try. <laughs> how, long you been at, how long you been at HashiCorp? uh it's been almost two years now wow yeah yeah we we um have a couple of people who teach terraform in fact i've got your uh your partner who's also helping us teach over here uh all the terraform stuff or at least i'm trying to get him to uh teach some terraform stuff. Yep. you know matthew's really uh, good yeah matthew um he is good dude I, he sat down with me one day because I was like, okay, I want to understand this product, the Terraform GCP for me or something for from Kubernetes. He's like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, okay, you win. You, you do understand this stuff. Yeah, Matthew knows his stuff. So I'm excited to get him to, to start being out there and teach because he told me he wrote a lot of the docs and a lot of the the, the stuff inside of uh, HashiCorp too. So He did. And, you know, he, he, had, he had experience over on the uh... – support side before coming over to uh, engineering. So his depth of knowledge is so vast because it's coming from, you know, two different two different aspects of the product, right? And he understands that having to deal with uh, customers and having to answer those questions as well as the engineering points, so. One of the nice things I think I remember him saying is you you, you guys use the product too, right? For, for the stuff that you're doing internally. So anytime a team can dog food the product that they're managing, building and selling, it's so much better. All right, so I want to talk about how you ended up in HashiCorp. So I'm going to put you in the time machine, Dom. We're going to also age you a little bit. So you're going to have to finally tell everybody that you're really 50 years old, not like 25 the way you look. And I'm sorry, I'm going to have to, going to, have to release that secret out. But just to get some dates in place, uh, what year did you graduate from high school? 2001. Oh, 2001. Oh, you are a baby, man. I mean, compared yeah. to here. <laughs> wow, 2001 high school. I'm thinking 2001. So I have a daughter who graduated in 2000. So that kind of puts you, puts me in my head kind of where you are there. Okay, perfect. So I love this question. Um, 
In fact, I forgot to ask this question to our last guest. Oh, man, I feel so bad. It would have been an amazing question to ask. And, oh, but I, I didn't forget to ask you, Dom. Anne got, had me overwhelmed a little bit because of all the stuff that she does. It's overwhelming. But I, I here, here's my favorite question. I want you not to think too hard. Don't think too hard. The first thought that pops in your head of you kind of working on a computer and that moment, like that light bulb moment or that joy moment of, of you working on a computer. First thing that pops in your head. First thing I can remember is setting up windows on uh, my family's uh, PC. It was like the, my, my very first kind of foray into computing. The, well, I guess they had DOS on the machine prior to you installing, was that Windows 95? Was there an earlier Windows other than Windows 95? That was definitely the first one I remember. I think they had 3.1. Oh, no. That. Well, 95 would have. So which Windows did you install? Um, it was definitely 95. Oh, it was 95. Okay. I mean, that was a fairly stable. I remember 98 was a nightmare, but 95 was uh, a fairly stable product. Yeah, I did get help from my uncle. I had, like, destroyed things at least two or three times before. And uh, he's also a software engineer, so I had to reach out to him and get help. <laughs> So do you remember how old you were or kind of what grade you were in? Uh, that would have been like fifth grade or so. Oh, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, you're really young then. Okay. That's fair. Did, okay. So like fifth grade. So, so essentially Windows 95 must have just come out. You're talking about like in 95 or somewhere around there you're installing this. What was I, actually? I'm kind of curious. This is the family computer. What, what is everybody using the computer for prior to you about to destroy it? You know, I, I they didn't really start using the computer until after I had I was in high school. About like uh, my sisters are only a couple years younger than me, and we weren't at the point where we were you know writing book reports on the computer yet. So basically, my mom got a computer because I asked for it, and it just kind of set in the den and nobody else touched it until again until i got about it was about high school age when the internet really kind of jumped so you're like mom i want a computer and she finds you this machine right it's a gotta be a pretty good machine you can install windows 95 on it and then do you remember the day she brought it home like like what, what were you doing on it did you were you playing games on it even that early so it was it was in december because i remember it was after uh, basketball practice and um I'd come in and there were the the four boxes because it was for the monitor and the CPU and it was a desk and a printer. And oh my god, like, it's you your got the whole setup. Yeah. yeah, it was the whole thing. And she was like, "Go ahead and set it up." So um, I had to put everything together and prayed that the desk didn't fall over. But we got it. <laughs> we got it all stood up. So and yeah, like I, 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 the main reason why I wanted it was to. It was the the Carmen San Diego game, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so, yeah, yeah. like, I I I, want, I wanted to play it because um, I played it at school, and that was the its main purpose for at least a while. So, and then Windows, how did you get a copy of Windows ninety five? That stuff wasn't free back then. I mean, you had to pay for licenses. Yeah, um, she got it uh, through a program because she worked for uh, Dana Engine Controls Corporation at the time, and they had like a, a a setup where you could buy the software from them at a discounted price. So your mom worked, what was, what was your mom doing at that company that, that you were lucky enough that she's working at a tech company? Yeah, she, she was the plant manager actually. So um, 
she had been there for uh, a really long time. So, um, she, yeah, she was plant manager. And so she got the, the actual software. I think when she bought it, she had to get it directly from it. And then, um, you know, they gave her the whole entire box with the CD and everything. So. Of course, they weren't going to mess with you, mom. I mean, if they needed exactly. something, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. there are certain people in every company that you form relationships with and your mom would have been one of them. You know what I would all, all and I, I tried to teach this when we were going to offices, especially as a consultant, the first people I would make friends with were the people in the mailroom. It would be one of the first contacts I would make because those people run, they literally run the office, the mailroom people. And if you can get, if you can become friends with them and, and, and do favors for them, like your life is 10 times easier in any building. Yep. I agree. So you, you get this computer, you want it to play some games, 90, Windows 95 comes out. You're, and you said your, your uncle was a software developer. Mm -hmm. What, where, what, do you know at the time what he was doing, where he was working, what he was coding? I think at that time he was at Compax. And then I think, since I, I mean, it was like an eighth grade. He's been at Oracle since then. I'm not for sure exactly what he does at Oracle, but um, in fact, I'm not even sure he's actually writing code still. So, I mean, Compaq had computers. Your uncle couldn't get you a, a Compaq computer. They, they were they were good. I, I the the actual CPU was Compaq, so I, I assume that she worked something out with him to get it. But had the big CRT monitor and everything. So, <laughs> you know, there'd be the the next time you guys are all together, it would be a great question. Hey, you know, that, that compact, uh, how did you get me that computer? Right? There might be a fun story behind that. Right? Maybe your uncle yeah. just saw a box laying around. He's like, hey, because, hey. you know, you know, when you work at a company like that, there's equipment everywhere. Right. Right. You know, I, actually, now I'm interested. I want to talk to your uncle. What's going on here? <laughs> no, but you should ask him. I think that would be interesting. So you got the computer to play games, but that's, kind of all it is for you right now it's it's more of a i don't want to say a toy but you're not looking at doing much of anything else but now when you start high school i imagine by the time you're starting high school you graduated in 2001 that it was required i'm trying to remember if my kids were required to when they were doing reports and everything to have everything sort of printed out i, I imagine you're in that World. I mean, I'm, I wasn't in that world, right? I even had to learn how to write script. I don't even think they're teaching <laughs> script anymore. Dude, so. Yeah, they don't teach cursive anymore. So, cursive, that's it. That's so you even know what it is. I don't even know what it is, and I had to learn it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I guess as you're entering high school, the computer's becoming a tool for doing homework. Yeah, I was almost solely at that point because like music was a big focus for me um, while I was in high school. So, there was a uh, software company called Sibelius that would uh, allow you to input sheet music. Like you could put in the uh, piano accompaniment and it would play the uh, piano accompaniment with you. Uh, at least it attempted to. <laughs> it, also, it also was a big um, tool for um, composing music. So almost solely at that point, I was working on it um, like again, having to play my accompaniments and like we wrote a couple of arrangements for um, marching band tunes. Like it was, um, hold on, let me think. Um, what instrument were you playing? Uh, euphonium. So um, I also played uh, sousaphone in marching band. So. 
Okay, so these are instruments that are really rare. In fact, I remember, I, I have to look them up. I don't remember what they all, the, the sousaphone. God, I kind of remember that name, but no one's ever said they've played the sousaphone. Oh, hold on. I, I'm, oh, versus the tuba. So is that as big as a tuba, smaller as a tuba? Oh, it's big. Well, in, in, in terms of its tubing, it's actually the same size as um, three and a quarter tuba. But it's the round one, so you sit inside yeah, of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. That. What was the other instrument you said you played? Uh, euphonium. So that's the the tenor tuba. It's an octave higher than the tuba. Wow, man, these names are interesting. Okay, so do you, I, see now when somebody tells me they played these types of instruments in in band, like, do you still have one? Do you ever? I, I do. I'm actually the the sub for uh, St. Louis Symphony. So when they have things that need euphonium, then I play. So that's typically like the planets, Gustav Holst, um, in Hindenleben. So you're still actively playing this instrument? I still play. I still play. So actually, I have some questions. My dad was a musician. He was a sax player, flute, clarinet, he, right? And that's kind of like a leading instrument, right? Like you go into a, into a vocal break and the saxophone goes off and does kind of its thing, but your instrument's more of a, like, how would you describe your instrument, your tuba, your sousaphone? Like, describe what that does in the band. Sure, so typically, I mean, if you if you thought of it, think of the the, the horn or French horn. Um, we kind of sit between the the, the, the the horn and the tuba. So a lot of the, the lines that we play are either doubling the tubas or kind of accompanying along with the, uh, the horns. But is it more like baseline sort of stuff? It's not lead stuff, right? So is it more baseline? Is it more ambiance? Is it, you know what I'm? In not yeah, it's, it's 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 more of a it's more of a background instrument, um, but it definitely has some um, lead lines because out of especially for low brass, like trombone players will tell you that the trombone is the closest thing to the human voice, but euphonium is the closest thing to the human voice. So don't let them fool you. <laughs> Wait, so so you can make it speak? Like, who's that guitarist that could make his guitar speak? Oh, my God, I can't remember his name now. Yeah, Stevie no, Vi. No, no. Stevie Vi could do it. There's, there was another guy. He even had an album, and he's making it talk. I can't remember his name. Everybody listening is screaming his name at me right now. And, all right, but so you can make you can make your instrument talk if it's close to the human voice? I, I think in terms of its tone and timbre, it's the most like your, your regular voice. But have you ever tried to play melodies on it? I guess you could then play a melody on it too if you wanted yeah, to. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Like yeah, I did. Okay. We did like Latin jazz and, and, and I mean, lots of solo playing. So. Oh, yeah, dude. You got to bring that down to Miami, man, because it's all, <laughs> it's all horns down here. Tito Puente, like he came to, he came to, because I went to school at uh, K State. Um, and uh, Tito Puente's band um, came up and played. Uh, it was like a they were on a concert series, and yeah, we got to play with them. So, so ideally, as you're going through high school, um, you're doing the marching band stuff, which is it, it, it's full time. It's dedicated. You're right. You, you, I've I've had some of my kids' friends in marching band, and I, I saw how intense and detailed that was, especially as you're trying to walk around the field and the formations and things like that. So, but you're not, are you, 
looking at that as a potential career at that point in high school? I mean, because you start thinking about what's next after high school. It was it wasn't until like my senior year that I'd kind of you know started to consider like what I wanted to do long term. And at that point, it was um, to teach. So I thought I was going to be a um, the high school band director or choir at this point. So I did both band and choir. So. Were you also thinking, because I remember a couple of my kids' friends thinking they wanted to be in a marching band at college, like they wanted to be on that college football field and experience that at the next level. Was that going on in your head too? You know, I didn't really consider it for marching band because I really wanted to focus on um, kind of concert playing. But at K-State, it's a requirement for music majors to uh, be in the marching band. So like I had to do um, two years and, you know, as a freshman, cause when you're a rookie, like you hate it, right. Cause you just got upperclassmen screaming at you and, and all these rehearsals and all this time commitment, um, on top of your regular classes for music. Um, and it was about halfway through my freshman year where like, <laughs> I legitimately started to like it. Right. Like I, I had to consider, uh, on my third year before I, cause I actually left and, um, auditioned at uh, Pershing zone, which is one of yeah, don't don't jump ahead of me now, Don. We got we got time here. I'm gonna I'm gonna get there. But so a couple things, right? So K State, that's Kansas, Kansas State. Is that K State? Yep. That's not Kansas though. It's Kansas State. They they have a decent football program over there. I'm trying to. I mean, I watch a lot of college football, but we do. Remember. It's it's it's, it's uh, I mean, they got like forty thousand, forty thousand people yeah. stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big stadium. What what even made you decide to go to K State? Is it a music school? Is it did they have the programs that you? And plus, where were you living? Were you in Kansas at the time? Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually from Kansas. So um, at the so what what kind of drew me to K State was there was a one of the band directors actually um, the assistant band director Scott Lubroff. Uh, at the time, it was between Wichita, which is far. Wichita does not have a, a football program, so they don't have a marching band. So. Um, I, I was leaning more towards Wichita and the person that I was dating was also leaning towards Wichita at the time. So, um, but then when, then when Dr. Lubroff got a hold of us and, and talked to us, we, we both decided that K-State was the spot. So. Okay. Um, uh, I, I was trying, no, dude, is K-State in the big 12? We are. Oh my God. How did I not know that? Now I'm really embarrassed. You're a big 12 school, dude. Yep. Oh, no, that's, that's, that's awesome. Okay. I mean, from a marching band perspective, that's big. I mean, you, you saw some big games in that stadium that I don't know why I didn't realize you guys were, you were big 12. So your girlfriend is going to want to go to K-State. They got a marching band there. It's a big 12 school for those who are not into college football. It's a, a major conference. And it just seems like how far away is that from home? Is that like an hour from home, three hours from home? Three and a half hours, probably almost four. All right, good, cool. And going into your freshman year, what are you you're thinking now that you're going to study music there and you're going to be a teacher of some so you're going to also focus on education. They must have an education degree there. How does that freshman year turn out? Everything is still kind of on path after your freshman year. You already said that you had to be in the marching band, but you end up kind of enjoying that. But you know, your those first year classes are always kind of boring. So, you know, I mean, talk to me about at least your first couple of years there in university and, and continue to move forward with music and education. 
you're right. The, the kind of prerequisite classes are kind of boring, um, especially when you have some background in music, because, you know, like music theory and oral training and piano class, um, you know, having some experience is, is, is helpful. But yes, it is it is a grind. I'll say that, like, I, I struggled um, pretty bad my, my first year. And it was mainly because, like, now nobody was around to wake me up. <laughs> so like getting to class and then it was the the summer in between freshman and sophomore year that um the band director um frank trace uh kind of pulled me to the side and was like hey man you gotta go to class like that's 80 percent of the battle right there is just going to class like you gotta show up like you gotta stop missing stuff and so i got a little better um, um second year uh was actually working with uh an adhd coach and they really kind of helped me hone in my schedule and having multiples of alarms set so that I was in the right place at the right time. So, But your grades couldn't have been horrifically bad because you came back your sophomore year. So it's not like you were – you must have had at least a 2-0 or better to at least keep going. It wasn't – dude, my first – okay, just to put it in perspective so you don't feel so bad, Dom. My first semester away from home, my GPA was a, a 0 0.9. Talk about not going to class, dude. Now, I didn't go to class because it was cold, and I didn't want to get out of bed. <laughs> but I, I feel you. You, know? you you don't have people pushing you, and you're just like, I don't want to do this. And you don't understand the consequences at that time either. Uh, but the good thing is that you, you got enough of the grades to be able to continue to kind of mature. It's a maturity thing. I always said I was immature for a long time. Yeah. It's a maturity yeah. thing, you know? But your girlfriend wasn't beating you up over that either. Yeah, she she kind of started dragging me. If you know, if, if it got to the point to where like, hey, like you know, she'd swing by my dorm room and be like, let's go. So like, it, it just it was one of those things, like you said, where there was definitely room to grow and like understanding that the reason why this is important is a because you're paying for it, and b because you know when you're not there, um, your parts are missing as well. So like, you're not just hurting. Uh, yourself, you could very well be hurting the ensemble at large. So um, that's what kind of kicked it into gear for me. I feel like at that age, money doesn't mean anything because you're so young. You just don't, you don't understand about credit, money. Like that's irrelevant. It, it, for me, and I would also argue for all the kids that I have, it, there has to be this moment when you realize that there's something you want to do and you're not going to be allowed to do that if you continue with a certain level of behavior that you're having. And the sooner a, a kid can find that thing, the better off they are. So my first three daughters found that in high school. And so they were very, very stable in, in university because they had this thing that now they changed their mind on these things, but they always had something that they wanted. I've got two boys that are 19 and 20 and they haven't found it yet. And it's killing them. You can just see it's killing them because they're basically in limbo while their peers are moving ahead of them because their peers found something. They're in limbo. And I just pray every day that they find that thing they want to do so they'll start pursuing it. When did you find the thing that you wanted to do? Because obviously it wasn't until... I mean, I don't think it was the marching band teacher telling you, dude, you have to do this. So 
at some point you find what you want to do. So when does that happen? Um, it was toward the, actually it was the last quarter of sophomore year. Uh, we had one of the military bands from DC. Actually, I think it was the Marine band, actually. Um, they came to K-State to do a concert because um, all four of them, all technically all five of the major um, services do, basically they split the U.S. up into four parts and they, um, they, they tour around. So K-State was one of the stops. And I happened to meet um, Matt Trotman, who was one of the uh, euphonium players in the Marine Band because he did like a masterclass for the low brass. And in the masterclass, you got to play for him. And so like, you know, I played one of the solo pieces that I was working on. And afterwards he talked to me and was like, hey, you should look at like really auditioning for um, one of the DC bands. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I'm good enough to make that because typically the bands in DC are, it's one audition for one chair. So you have to audition against, you know, probably 200 people. Um, and a lot of these are going to be mastoral, you know, or master or doctoral uh, candidates. So if they've not already finished. So um, is this only when a chair opens up or you can take somebody's like you can compete for that chair? So typically those chairs are only open when somebody retires. So most people stay in for um, the full 20 years at that point. So, so he's telling you you're good enough to at least try out if there's an open chair or he's telling you there's an open chair right now in one of these uh, symphonies. Is that what he's telling you? Typical. You're like, I'm not good enough. I'm hoping that he convinces you at least try. So what happens after that conversation? Do you go and try? Yeah, it was, it was not until um, the summer that um, one of the euphonium players in Pershing zone, um, Neil Corwell was, uh, retiring. So his seat was going to come available. And the way the auditions work is there's a taped round where they give you, it's usually a set of seven pieces or so. And they ask you to do, basically, you have to send in a recording of uh, the snippets of those eight pieces where they ask you to play it. So, and then from there, there's a, a, a live tape round or like a, a, an actual live audition round where it's you and a partition and then behind it. So, But you have to go there for that. Yeah, you have to go out to D.C. for that. Actually, I'm kind of interested in knowing how do you know when their seat becomes available? Is there just a general bulletin board of of symphonies and seats? Yeah, so they, they usually post it, um, and it would go in all the, the big music publications. Like in my case, the, the posting came out in um, International Tube Euphonium Associations. Um, uh, publication that came out, I think it was once a month. Um, so it was like a full magazine or whatever, and, the, and they sent it out to you, and I happened to see it in there. So it sounds like you passed the tape audition. You, you, <laughs> I did. You did that. You submitted it. Were you initially shocked, like, oh, my God, they're inviting me to come to to D.C.? To Was it New York or D.C.? You said D.C.? D.C., yeah. I, I was I was more than shocked. Yeah, I was, I was definitely more than shocked. Um, from that point, my expectations were um, just go out and and see what happens. Um, but I by no means thought that I would actually win. Because, again, I'm competing against people that are 
world. But this is happening in the middle of your third year, your third year, right? Mm-hmm. Well, right before my junior year. Yeah. Right before. So in the summer, in between semesters. So you fly out to D.C., you have no idea what you're going to play. Are you in a room like when I see American Idol where like you're seeing your competition or is it scheduled in a way that you're kind of isolated from the, the numbers? Yeah, so when you initially get there, there's six of you, right? So they, they pare it down from the probably, and I think in our case it was 205 is what they told us. So they pared it down to six, and they put us all in the same room. So out of 200 people, wait, wait, out of 200 people that submitted tapes, you're one of six that they invite back. I mean, did you know you were going to be just one of six when you showed up? Because now your chances are good. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. Um uh, at all, but they, they 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 stick you in that room. What what are you thinking? What do what what are you thinking when you see there's only five other people here? D- does your confidence go up? No, it absolutely didn't. Um, because they they when they when they when they when they put us in the room, um, you're just in there with them, and like so, I'm listening to them warm up as I'm warming up, and I'm like I'm in trouble. Like <laughs> all of them are way better than me, and I have no idea how I'm I'm going to get through this. Um, is everybody snarky, or is everybody just superficial or passive aggressive, or is everybody genuinely nice to each other? Everybody else that had that was there um, already knew each other because they had played against each other in. International Tube Euphonium Association's uh, competitions, as well as the uh, Leonard Falcone competition. I was the only person that had not. I was the I was like the unknown. You were the wild card. You were the wild card. They were afraid of you, man. You know, <laughs> they were, like, they, were uh, they were panicking in their head. I mean, and they all have been the big music schools: University of Michigan, University of Georgia, North Texas University, which is a really big euphonium place. Um, so yeah, they were they were from big schools. Somebody from USC, and so I'm I'm from a small Midwest school. Yeah, but dude, come on, you're K State. No, no, you're K State in the Big Twelve. I don't want to hear it. Okay, you're in the Big Twelve now. If you told me you were in like the Atlantic Coast Conference, I'd be like, <laughs> okay, what? <laughs> but I I get it. I get it. You know, I get it. So so you obviously you do this audition. Right. And then what? They say, we'll get back to you and you go home, you go back home to Kansas. Or do you know everything that's happening there? Yeah. So we, we got we got the results right there. So basically the six people go up and they play. Now, again, we're right outside the door. Like I can hear the other person playing. Right. So because they do it in um, by last name, like in last name order, like I went last. So I heard everybody else playing and like each one of the things, because basically when you go um, on stage and you're behind the partition, you're sight reading and it's, but it's all wind band literature, right? So the way that I prepped for this, although maybe seemingly kind of crazy now, like I got every single piece of music that they played in like a 10 year period. And I pulled every single, every single one of the, the charts from our band li- library and went through them, but like listen to them and then play along with them and did the whole bit, right? So like, how many weeks what did that take cuz how much time did you have between the time that you were told to go and audition it was a month so it was a month i had, I had 30 days so 
it was, you know, nine to 10 hours a day of, of practice, right? During the summer. Now, did that end up working? Did they end up choosing something that you had practiced? Everything that they chose, like the very first thing I remember was uh, uh, Shostakovich. It was a uh, festive overture. So, which is like a big euphonium piece anyway. It's got a big euphonium solo in it. So a lot of those things are going to be things that you're playing in the ensemble. They just want to see if you have the chops to hang. So, but after everybody plays, then they pare it down to three. And so I was one of the, one of the three. Then what they do is they bring you, they bring uh, your actual section mates up on stage and you have to play with the section. So um, there was a couple pieces there. And so then after that, they go down to two. And then you have a piece that is going to be put in front of you that oftentimes is probably not written in the clef that you read in, or it's not going to be for your instrument. So at the time, again, I was dating a trumpet player and we had been together since forever. I was a senior. Yeah. So like we've been together for a long time. So like I had, you know, over that time period, we, we had, I'd heard her play everything that she's ever played. Right. So when Jason Ham was, is, it was, was, who was actually in front of me. But um, so when he went up to play, um, immediately when I heard the piece that he was playing, I knew, I knew what it was. And it was Theo Charlier's um, Characteristic Studies, which is, uh, he's a French composer. Dude, like every domino fell the right way for you. Oh, yeah. Like everything perfect. Or I heard it. And because when he came out, he saw me smiling and he was like, Do you know that piece? <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I know it. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like huge jerk so um yeah i i i played the snot out of it because again i'd heard it so many times i'd heard her play it and like so every spot that was hard well i've already heard her play it like and, and I, at that time the majority of the way that i was able to i was able to take things in very fast because like i played by ear so um now that would later get exposed but um i, I as soon as i heard it i was like mm, okay i got that one so you know, my dad was the same way. He later in life, he tried to start learning how to read sheet music because he wanted to play in some of the bigger bands, but he had always learned by ear. So dude, so you get this position then, right? Like you beat out Michigan, dude, for the first time, K-State beats Michigan. No, right. <laughs> K-State beat Michigan, US, dude, you go back to your school. You're like, that's a legend, bro. You beat out all the other schools. But now you have to quit school. Had to have to quit school and go to basic training. Base. Oh, this is a military band. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's actually called uh, Pershing Zone. It's in uh, D.C. So you were trying out for a band that required you to enlist. In is this the, not the Marine Band? Which band is this? Uh, Army, active duty Army. Army. So now you've got to go through. Ooh. So you know what? I'm a section four F dude. I tried to go into the uh, into the army or the navy. I don't remember anymore. I think, it did. and I failed the physical. So imagine that you get selected for this chair and then you fail the physical. Like I would have cried. Obviously, yeah. you didn't. Yeah. So yeah. what is your mom? What is your mom saying at this point? Like she thinks your moms don't like their boys going into the military, especially around 2000 and. Um, now we're talking like 2003, 2004. Yep. We are right so, in the in the beginning of, of Operation Desert Storm. So. Yeah, so what does mom say about this life choice here? I'm going to, mom, join in the army. I'm going to play in that band. 
she hated it. Um, she absolutely hated it. <laughs> she hated it. Uh, and, you know, like it was one of those things where um, that band, its primary function is to um, play for events and things that are, and besides our touring schedule, are things that are within DC. So, um, I, I my, my deployment didn't happen until um, after I left that band and went to another band. Um, and kind of made the choice to do that, but um, yeah, she, she didn't like it when she thought I was going to. Yeah, she didn't like it when she thought I was going to have to deploy. And well, anything could happen at that point. You're 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 in uniform, and you're going to have to go through basic. And right, I mean, anything can happen at that point. So, so, but you made the choice. What about your uh, your girlfriend, your long term girlfriend at the time? Yeah. So when because again, I was not expecting to make it. Right, like when I. I got, back to the, I got back to the hotel after they told me that, um, you know, they were going to select me. Um, and I called her and told her and she was like, what? Like, because I mean, I, I, that was, that was everybody's reaction. Right. Like, cause it was like, hold on, this is an undergrad. Uh, things just had to like that day had to really shake out my way. Right. Like, I, cause I don't know genuinely if I was a better player at that time than, than anybody that, that, happened to be there that day just happened to be that, that day i played better right so um dude why do you constantly do that i it kills me like why do you constantly put yourself i mean and i would have been upset at everybody why are you so surprised like i told you i'm this good like why, why are you so surprised that, that would have been my reaction i was like come on now it's me it's dom i told you i was good yeah it was just one of those things man where like those those spots typically were um, if you didn't go to University of Michigan, University of Georgia, or North Texas, a lot because like they 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 the way that those teachers at at those individual schools teach they teach for those military bands right because there's there's the DC bands and then there's the rest of the field and and the field uh, those are going to be bands like Fort Jackson and, and Fort Riley and those auditions are completely different right like they're not they're not staffing for what they consider to be like you know, world-class um, musicians, those are, you know, it's just, it's just a much different environment, right? So typically you need to have some experience to be able to, to play at, at that level. And so then, okay. Okay. But so then what does your music director say when you tell, tell him that I just got this seat over the summer and I'm not coming back because obviously I have to take this. Or did you not tell anybody at K-State that you just got this job? Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't talk to him until I got back. Um, so that audition was on a Friday. So I got back on um, actually that following Tuesday because I had to go to MEPS in uh, D.C. Uh, to go through and do all the um, medical testing before I left. Um, so when I got back on Tuesday, um, we have Symphony Band, um, which is the top ensemble at K-State. And at three thirty, so I told him I needed to talk to him, and he was like, "We'll just come at, at you know, like three. And so walked in and and didn't even sit down. I just told him, it just kind of like all spilled out, right? And he was like, "That's fantastic." You know, generally I wouldn't tell someone <laughs> to leave school, but like that's an excellent opportunity, and I couldn't be more pleased for you. So, and then at that point, it kind of spread through um, the music school that I had got it. So. Yeah, and you know the K State should have your picture up somewhere because I mean it's a big deal, dude. Like you beat out Michigan. Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So 
this is now super interesting because you're you're going to move forward in this music at least you know for the next four years what you're doing right and and this could lead to a professional symphony right i guess broadway or something I'm, i know you're not thinking that far out yet but but at least you got the next four years mapped out so you enlist you do your basic training which must have sucked because you had no plans to ever go through that for six weeks right you got through it though but you were a lean mean fighting machine after those six weeks weren't you yep <laughs> uh, training was, was an experience man because i think you know compared to the other services the army's basic training is kind of a, a mid-grade where the marines would be kind of extreme in terms of uh, of what you go through and it, it took a couple of weeks because i was older when um you know i went through basic training then then like everybody that was in my platoon like you get put into leadership positions and you know especially like when you meet drill sergeants and like you think that they're a certain way and like when you have to deal with them so often when you're kind of in leadership uh, you see they're not trying to kill you right like that's not their job like they're trying to teach you and so everything kind of falls within that lens and you start seeing it that way that all of the other stuff is is puffery at this point like they're just they're they yes they do things to get get your attention but ultimately they're trying to teach you so taking it that way is important and they taught you how to wake up at four in the morning too yes they most certainly <laughs> did <laughs> yes they most certainly did did you have opportunities to at least play and or practice while you were in basic or it was just heads down six weeks you didn't touch that instrument at all yeah yeah it's it's the actually for us it's nine weeks so and technically it's it's really closer to 12 weeks because you sit in um kind of a reception battalion before your drill while your drill sergeants are finishing finishing up the the previous cycle uh, uh, so yeah so then they they bring you over after they're finished so Dude, that's three months of not touching the instrument. I and I know you're proficient in it, but that had to hurt a little bit. Yeah, you know, honestly, I didn't think about it until after I was done with basic training and kind of you kind of feel the feel like you can finally take a deep breath because you know you finished something that was you know in my opinion it was a big deal for me because um, again I wasn't overly athletic or or uh, you know any of those things. So like having to kind of go through something that was both mentally and physically taxing. You know, take a deep breath and it's like, oh, now I have to like pick up an instrument now. Right. So um, but they they when I when I got after I'd finished, when, we, when I got to the band, um, I didn't do anything for two months and was just on the horn just to kind of get your embouchure set back. Because, you know, again, you don't play for a while. And those muscles get kind of weak. So, yeah, that's what I was. I was I mean, I figured also it's like riding a bike. You just had to get your body back in in shape so so from basic you get you now just get deployed to this like where does the band deployed are they stationed somewhere yeah so i where our band hall is is uh in virginia so i actually lived in um i rode the um metro in dc over to um virginia to to fort Monroe. actually is where we were but so now you're in this band and how long are you with this band? I guess it works out. At some point, do you realize that you did deserve to be there? Does this ever pop into your head at any time while you're 
playing with this band? Yeah, but it it it, it took a while. Um, you know, I and and, and by and large at, at that point, like I knew that uh, even though I had made it, I knew I had gaps in in my playing. Um, and it wasn't just gaps in my playing as much as it was uh, like I could not count. Okay, like when I say I could not count, I mean my reading ability at best was remedial and how this got found out was by my section leader um heard me playing along with a recording and he came in and he was like hey what's up dog uh what are you doing <laughs> i was like uh oh no, no, no. I was just listen to this recording and kind of playing along and he was like let me go grab my horn so he went and grabbed his horn and he came in and he was like let's play it together now again mind you this is something that i have not seen this is you know this is this is true sight reading and I didn't have someone there to kind of like coach me through it or listen to a recording to be able to, to be able to pick up the parts. Right. So we attempted to play and I didn't do well. <laughs> and he was like, you can't read, can you? And I was like, I don't know. Can't read is maybe the best way to approach that. And he was like, give me all your stuff. All of it. So I had all my solo, all my solo literature, everything, right? He took everything from me. And the Arbin book is like the brass Bible, right? It's like the um, pedagogy tool that we use that will take you from like the very beginning stages of playing to Carnival of Fitness, right? So it takes you through the whole entire maturation of learning how to play the instrument. And he took everything I had. He copied the first two pages out of the Arbin book. And this is after, again, after I'd already been there for, I don't know, three or four months. I'd already played a couple concerts and stuff. So, um, but he took everything. He gave me the the couple pages out of the Arvin book, and he did not allow me to do any more concerts until he felt like my reading level matched the ensemble that I was in. So then the band is missing this instrument. Yeah. So, but I mean, we we had four. So, like, I was just one of four. So. Um, but yeah, he, he, he took me off and every day for roughly four hours, because we only really rehearse, um, once or twice a week, like, it, you know, for, 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 for that ensemble, again, you're dealing with like the highest level of professionals. They don't need a whole lot of rehearsal time to do things. So, um, but four hours a day, every day, even Saturdays and Sundays, he beat on me about kind of because he, he would he would tell me that I was a walking contradiction that I could play Carnival of Venice but couldn't play Come to Jesus in whole notes so he uh, <laughs> liked to uh, like to put that out so he beat on me and beat on me and beat on me and um, it was about a year actually I guess they couldn't fire you I, they could have fired you he could have just said you're gone yeah he he could have uh, he could have at any point said that, uh, I mean, basically like you sold them a dream, right? <laughs> Where you went through and you smoked this audition, but the majority is, and there was nothing in that audition that I had not already seen and had not played because again, that's the, just the way that I prepped. And so, yeah, he, he, he beat on me and it was, it was, it had been about a year. Like I had not done a concert at all. And so he, he put something he put something in front of me and I wasn't even consciously thinking about it. Right. Because we've been doing this every day, beating these fundamentals to death. Right. Um, and he put something in front of me that 
I was like, okay, let's go. Like, you know, he, he would, he would put it on the stand and then he'd tell me to flip it over. And then he would just tell me to go. Like, I'm not going to look at it. I don't get to like finger through it or anything. I just have to play it. And it was actually because there was somebody else that was leaving. And that day we did everything that was going on the next audition. And I played through all of it without any mistakes. And he was like, ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, again, I I hated them, right? Because it was the, probably the most humbling experience that I've I've ever had. Because again, I made the ensemble, right? You know, part of me, like in, in the back of my head, I'm thinking I already made it. I beat people that had you know masters and 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 doctoral degrees in music, and this guy's beating on me, you know, doing what I considered remedial um, counting things. But it was the f- fundamental basis of playing, like without having a foundation it didn't matter like you wouldn't be able to play things because or there there was always going to be a cap on what you could play because you could not do fundamental things correctly so you essentially finished your your college degree in that year in terms of music (laughs) basically what happened he had you finish that and now you're better off for it without without quitting on you or kicking you out you know now I'm super curious too, though, because if you only practiced four hours a day, what did you do for the other 20 hours a day as somebody in the army in a band? Well, the, the, the other four hours with him. Yeah, the other four hours were, the, the, the first four hours were just with him. Like we would come in in the morning. So we would go do PT because he would make me get up and run with him. And then from like seven to nine, we'd have our first two hour block. And then... I would go from, you know, on most days, on days that we didn't actually have rehearsal. Now, he like he would let me sit through rehearsals, um, but that didn't happen until about six months into this where he felt like I was going to be fine and not need to, like, listen to everybody else to be able to figure out what I needed to do. But um, the rest of the day was me practicing, right? Like, I, I just, you know, I was spending... I actually used uh, an app called Clockify that would clock all of my time, and like, I was averaging well over 12 hours of playing. Where... So you're with this band? For how many years are you with this band? I mean, you lost a year eight. getting your fundamental. You're there eight years. So so what does that mean? After four years, you, you said, I'm going to do another four years, and you stay with the band? Yeah, like every every four years, there there's typically an enlistment period. So does, while you're in this band, do you get to grow in rank as well over time? Yeah, you, you go in as a staff sergeant. So, uh, I mean, typically at you'll get E7 within or sergeant first class you'll get E7, like usually during your second enlistment you do so you essentially do two full tours essentially with this band you do your first four you do and now what you have to decide if you're going to be military like is this going to be fully career or you're going to get out or so what are you so what's going on at that point after these eight years well i i had the section had almost entirely flipped over at that point everybody had retired um, and we had all new people in. Like I, at, at that point, I was the, I had been there the longest. Um, so uh, I actually had a buddy of mine that was a percussionist um, who had a degree in computer science, and he, he was on the verge of getting out. And he was like, "You should really learn how to code." And I was like, "Ah, I don't do math. Uh, I don't. I don't want to deal with that." Right? And he was like, "It's. It's honestly the way that it's practiced." at a high level is not different from, from what we experience here as, as musicians here in DC. 
um, like the attention to detail, um, really the onus to practice, right? Like how you practice. And so like I saw a lot of correlation between it and I was at the point where, you know, touring for where you're gone three fourths of the year um, is hard. Um, they, they actually call the, the, that band the divorce band <laughs> because if you're not married to somebody in the band, you're typically going to get divorced, right? So um, I'd say at that point, it was kind of taking a toll on my, um, on my relationship. And so like, I just, I made the choice to, to, to jump out. So, so, but jumping out means jumping out of the army, which means jumping out of a job, which means that, and the only skill you have right now is basically being in this, in this orchestra, but your buddy is somehow talking to you about, do you should learn how to so write software? but you've never written a, a line of software in your life at that point. So I'm trying to understand what your, what your at least short-term plan is, where are you going to go live? Cause they've been giving you a place to live. They've been feeding you. <laughs> Talk about that. I didn't have a plan. I knew that I, I felt like my, my relationship was definitely being impaired by, by me being away so often. And so when I, you know, this is the same, the same person from high school. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah. So That's a long time. So now you're together like 12 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we and we, we got married like right before I went to basic training, but, um, so it was, it was definitely, I'd say it was definitely affecting things. And so, you know, when I made the choice to, to get out, we were both like, well, I don't know where to go. So St. Louis seemed like as, as good of a spot as any to, to, to land because we didn't want to go back to, to Manhattan um, because again, that's where we had gone to school. So where did she, what was she doing? What was she doing for work at that point? I guess she had a job. Yeah. She was doing her master's in trumpet performance at uh, George Mason at the time. So, so she was also a musician. So it's just trumpet spots didn't open up right away. So, um, and what's actually funny um, is you know, after I had been out, and I don't want to skip too far ahead, but she actually we got divorced, and now she's in the Navy band in DC. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Now she's so, experiencing uh, experiencing that. All right, so you decide that it's time to get out. Uh, it's it's not working personally in your marriage, and you've done everything you're going to do here anyway. You must be tired of playing that same song over and over again. That's I, I, got to drive you crazy at some point yeah yeah lots of so, army song over and over so again. you know what's funny is my i growing up my dad every time i i made a mistake in high school he'd take out his sax and start playing all the military songs it was his way of saying keep it up son that's where you're going to end up and he would just <laughs> go through all the marching band songs for the navy the marines <laughs> That was that was his way of saying just without saying it. <laughs> That's it, 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 can, it can definitely get redundant, but yeah, like I I I had after I'd been out for about a month, uh, I reached out to my you know reached out to my buddy and was like, okay, I guess you're gonna teach me how to code, I guess. But so wait wait so you were wait 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 you're out a month, but you weren't looking at high schools or other bands or you were just done with music. Like, what what did you do for that? I, I'm kind of curious what you did for that month. Or you just said I needed time off. Yeah, I was I was burnt out. Um, 
I, I put the instrument down for a while. I actually got a job at Walmart and uh, was just doing cashier. And at that point, like I was still getting pay from um, being on active duty. Like I think I, I got seven or eight months worth of pay. Um, so for that first month, it was just like, I don't know, find something to do. And again, since I knew, because he, he had gotten out almost, you know, three or four months before me. So uh, when I when I reached out to him, I was like, okay, teach me how to code, I guess. Like, since you think it's so, since there's so many correlations, like, you know, just where do I start? So uh, we started with, because uh, he lived like 30 minutes away from, from me at the time. So I would go to his house and he was like, okay, sit down. And he took me to Coding Bat. And so... so that was that was that was my first real foray into writing code at all, and he gave me um, I don't know some clock problem, and of course all he did was yell at me. <laughs> so uh, I don't know what you what are you doing? What are you, why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. So um, he was like, okay, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm a crappy teacher. Maybe I need to um, maybe we can figure out some other way. I, I wanted to learn, but it was difficult to learn with him standing over me screaming at me. Right. So um, there happened to be a uh, boot camp that had started up here in St. Louis called um, Launch Code that had a program that was going to be for four months and it was Monday through Friday, um, eight till five. And so I um, did an interview for that and, and got in and that's where truly everything kind of kicked off for me as a software engineer. Now that was a, what at the time, what year is that? That was, it, it, what year is that? Is that like 17? Yeah, right around there. Yeah. Yeah. Pre-pandemic. And were you doing a web dev sort of boot camp? You were going to learn CSS, HTML, JavaScript. What, what was the material for that course? Oh, we started out in uh, Java, actually. And so we did Java. Oh, Java. Okay. And then we did, um, one of the sections was for Python. And it had like some HTML and CSS wrapped up in that as well. What is that? A twelve week? That was a twelve week sort of boot camp. Did you enjoy? So my my wife is going through Iron Hack right now, which is a boot camp, and I can tell you, man, it she's doing web dev, but it's intense. I mean, she shows up to class at nine in the morning, and she doesn't get home till seven. She's got to do stuff on the weekends. I mean, it's intense. Was it was it that intense to your boot camp? Yeah, it, it was, it felt like I was in that spot where I was when I was on active duty, where they took all my stuff and now I know nothing, right? Like where I'm, I'm just kind of, I felt like I was kind of getting beat on. And I, I think too, especially that first boot camp, um, that like I was probably getting in my way more um, because like I had, I had already had it made up in my mind that I was not smart enough to do the job. <laughs> Um, so like I, I wouldn't, because staring at the screen does not actually write code. I don't know if <laughs> that's ever been said before, but yeah, staring at the screen does not actually write code at all. Um, and, and having feelings about the code oftentimes does not write code either. So I would just sit, I'd get stuck on something and I would just like, I spend more time thinking about why I was stuck rather than actually putting that brain power towards actually solving the problem. So I definitely struggled. Um, mightily through that 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 first those first two sections of html and css stuff was was not nearly as bad for me but um those first two sections oh i struggled like my computer was always broken and i was always doing something wrong and so i had to fight through it so 
But you fought through it. You didn't quit. You didn't say, you know, I'm done with this. You fought through it. And you got through those 12 weeks. And then what? I mean, are you ready for a job after those 12 weeks? Or, or do you feel like you need more education, more time? Absolutely not. I was not, now what no what they said was that um I, I was job ready but I, I absolutely was not um it was definitely at that stage where I um talked better than I wrote code and that's what kind of got like my ability to communicate was what kind of got me across um you know and you get that first job and one of the things that kind of that stayed with me was our teacher at the time uh his name's Chris but uh he said that, you know, you kind of always needed to be in a state of learning. And so for me, it was like, the reason why I was good at basic training was because it was a controlled environment, right? Like they told you what to do, how to do it, when to do it. It was check marks, right? So like that was much better for me rather than I was going to be doing the ambiguous thing where I'm going to be trying to learn things. And and so what happened was after I got my, my first job, I went to my second boot camp, which led to a third and then a fourth and the fifth. And at this point now I've done. While you, while you were at the other job, while you were at the job. So you kept going doing boot, but that's good. That filled your time, but boot camp. So for like first year, so first of all, you got a job out of, outside of the first boot camp. That's amazing. Right. You got some, what was that job? What were you doing in that job? Uh, data analytics actually. So I was, uh, they had a big data lake that they wanted data moved out and it was like lots of decision table type things. So, uh, and then and that was cause that was that first internship. So once I finished, it was, I'd been there about five months and they had me move over. They had another platform that did, uh, OCR scanning for documents. And that was in C sharp. Um, and like, ah, Java and C sharp are the same thing. And I'm like, oh, no, it's not, but <laughs> No, it's not. Sure. <laughs> we'll call it that. So, so then I moved over and started working on that. That's brilliant. So you were, you were getting professional level experience and then you still felt that that wasn't going to be enough. So you kept investing. Plus you're getting money from the, the, the government still during this time. Right. And then you go and you did another few boot camps. So when we head into like, I guess say two, 2018, you're done boot camping. You're still, how long are you with this company? You know, after you're done boot camping, I was with them for six months. So I was with them for actually, actually it was right around eight months is, is, is was kind of the cutoff for that. Then I had another opportunity, um, come up with, a uh, union Pacific. Oh, how did you find that job? I actually, there was somebody at my church, uh, that, knew the owner and was like, Oh, you should link up with, with, uh, with Dan and, and, and talk to him. So that's right where that kind of dropped in. So I got a meeting with him, talked and he was like, yeah, you should definitely come work with me. So what was that job? What, what did you do? Yeah, that, that was, that was software engineering. We worked on with Java, um, as well as spring. And then on the front end, it was, well, the, the first project was actually AngularJS, so like before they had components or anything, and then they switched to like in the middle of that project and wanted us to do it in um, in Angular. So we had to switch out and add components and do all that stuff. So, so during this, how long are you there? You're there for at least a year. I was there for a year. Okay, so then let's talk about the, those two years, seventeen, eighteen, maybe a little into nineteen. Um, 
your head's down working as a computer. Like you wouldn't have thought about that in 2016. If somebody said, you're going to be a software developer in 12 months, you would have laughed. But there you are working this job, you're home now, you're not traveling. Uh, so two questions there. Are you still finding some opportunity to play music? You're, you're still married during these two years? Your wife is still going to school at that point, finishing her master's? Yeah, well, she, she had finished actually um, before we left D.C. So, um, but during those two years, it was after the, the first job that I had going into the second one. That's when we got actually divorced. So, but I was still finding time to play. It was just with, uh, basically, they have a community band that's made up of, here in St. Louis, it's made up like of all college professors. So you get the opportunity to play with people that, you know, can actually play. And so I was playing with them. And that's when I, I first try got out. Were, yep. you, were you nervous during that tryout? I mean, come on, with the band that you had already been playing with for eight years, tell me you weren't at least nervous for that. Absolutely not. I was fine for that one. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I, was, I was definitely okay. good there. All right. And they had a seat open or you were bringing a new instrument into that? Band? I imagine you were bringing a new instrument into that band. Yeah, they they had one euphonium um, player at the time. And um, I was like, hey, I played in Pershing's own. Uh, I'm out now and, and, you know, looking for opportunities to play still. And you know, if you guys would have me and they were like, absolutely. Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, I, I definitely played for, uh, and, and like he, uh, you know, he get, he gave me, he was like, well, I just want to, you know, like hear you play on a couple of things and he gave me stuff and yeah, I'd breeze through it. So. Yeah. That wouldn't have been an issue, but yeah, you do have to at least like prove to me, you're not lying kind of stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> did you actually you know what now i'm interested when you're in the army they hand they issue you an instrument right it's not your instrument so are you now playing your old high school instrument once you leave no so like they they, they issue you that well in that band they're, they're wilson euphoniums um but i had already bought my own so um that's the one that i played the whole entire time which was a, a besson prestige 2052 actually Oh, you were allowed to have your own instrument when you were there. It's just, it's just it's the, the the timbre of the of the section too, because like that—that's really what distinguished me from the people that I auditioned with was my sound matched the section, and so you want to be able to kind of meld into the section as opposed to being something that sits you know way above the section. And that's a lot of them playing like solo players as opposed to playing like ensembles, an ensemble player. So. I mean, at the end of the day, that instrument's your hammer, just like we say today, your laptop is your hammer. So, you know, you got to have the best hammer that you can afford. And you, you had that, you had the right hammer that whole time. So you had, you had your instrument. So that's good. So now what happens after a year at uh, Union Pacific? Yeah. So I had a, uh, a buddy of mine, a horn player, um, that during my first two years at K-State, I was actually taking lessons with Scott Watson, who's the tuba teacher over at, at KU, actually, so our, our rival school, so um, at University of Kansas. And I met Patrick um, through that, and because uh, he actually had horn lessons right next door to me, because <laughs> the horn teacher and the tuba teacher's offices were right next to each other. So uh, we met through that, and he actually had a uh, startup that was doing some um, machine learning stuff that uh, basically would ingest uh, data through a pipeline and then would uh, spit out uh, questions based on that data. So 
it was being used as kind of a teaching platform. Um, but it was a startup, and he was like, "Hey, I uh, hear that uh, you're writing code now." And I'm like, "Yeah, like you should come work for me. I'm I'm in St. Louis." I'm like, "You're in St. Louis. I'm in St. Louis." So that's kind of led to that. So I was there for. But where did you meet him when you had that conversation? Um, he actually messaged me on Facebook. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was complaining about something that I had probably broken on my machine, and uh, in, in in status, and he was like, "Wait a minute, sounds like you're writing code. What's going on?" So, <laughs> so you decided to then jump on that startup. Did you like working at the startup? I I, I was having a conversation with uh, somebody, a new per, someone who's just getting into the engineering field, and I told them. I want you to spend a year at a startup and I want you to spend a year at a big company and figure out what's better for you. Do you like the structure and the slowness or do you like the chaos and the, you don't know what you're going to do every morning when you wake up? Uh, what did that was, you That was the thing. That, yeah. That's not you. From what I know, you don't like chaos. You like to know what's going to happen today. Yeah, it was, it was hard because the level of engineering that I needed to, be both productive and actually contribute i wasn't there right like we're we're still in the like i didn't finish that last boot camp until i mean really it was two years ago right so like that was the last boot camp that, that i've done so um I, I was not confident in my ability yet at all and i mean there's still some days where i'm not <laughs> that as as well but like i really was not confident then and yeah it was a lot to kind of take in when they're throwing stuff at you all the time and it's over a wide swath of 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 tech like you know we're dealing with kubernetes and docker and graphql and and javascript and we had just started doing stuff in in uh rust at that point so uh it, it was hard like a lot of stuff to be learning all the time and again i i i enjoyed it but yeah i i didn't i'll say that I didn't contribute as much as I would have liked to. How long were you at the startup? I was there for a year and a half before they closed out. So, and they closed. So, did they close out at the end of like twenty twenty one? Yeah, it was. It was nineteen ish, like right at the beginning. It was. It was almost. It was almost twenty twenty at that point. But yeah, they they actually closed. Um, and so I I helped I, I work in someplace else. But yeah. Yeah, well, you're kind of forced to go work somewhere else now, right? Yeah. But you got yeah. exposed. It sounds like the nice thing about the startup, even though the environment's a little chaotic for you, you got exposed to essentially what is the current modern tech in the space that we're kind of all in today. You dropped Rust and Kubernetes and Docker, and you got to kind of see all that. So um, what happens now? Because... I imagine you had some lead time to be told that we're not going to last here, or did the startup just one day say, uh, "Sorry, guys, we're we're done." How much lead time did you have finding the next job? They literally told me um, it was a a Wednesday that we were closing on Thursday. So what did you do at that point, other than we had a really fun weekend drinking because we had to just let that go? So Monday comes around. <laughs> so yeah, I. I, I I got the news and uh, I grabbed my kids and uh, we went to Chicago and we were there for for a week and hung out and went to the museums and 
aquarium and did that whole bit. And I happened to my youngest, uh, Elijah. Um, and actually at that point, he was the only one that was there. And so, um, I was changing his diaper and I had like a weird number come up on my caller ID and I was like, ah, oh, who's that? I ignored it and finished changing his diaper and we were sitting, um, watching the, uh, dolphins actually. And the number came up again and I was like, okay, who is this? So I answered it and it happened to be a recruiter, uh, that was looking for someone, um, for Washington university here in St. Louis, um, looking for someone for the, uh, they had a programming uh, position with, uh, one of the data teams here. So that's what led to that. They, how did they find your resume? LinkedIn? So while you're saying, I'm going to take a week off and spend time with my kid. By the way, I didn't know you ended up having kids. We missed that somewhere in the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many kids, how many kids do you have? I have two. So Elijah two. is, Elijah just turned seven and uh, Ezra, my youngest is five. Nice. I love kids. I, I, Let's just say I, I say I manage seven kids right now. So, <laughs> yep. yep. So it's a lot of fun. That. Yeah. It's amazing how things just work out. Like the universe is just constantly trying to balance. I say to the kids all the time, the universe is constantly trying to balance itself. If you keep positive thoughts, the universe is going to send positive things your way. I really believe that. So suddenly now you said, I'm going to take the week off. I'm going to, enjoy some time with my kids. And now this job opportunity uh, presents itself. So did you, you end up interviewing for that and you ended up getting that job? Yeah. So I interviewed for them. It's actually the research infrastructure team. So um, they did, basically we, we set up the compute and storage instance for uh, the whole entire university. Basically they were tired of researchers having servers sitting under their desk because technically any research that you do while you're at the institution belongs to the institution. So. <laughs> yeah, I've seen this. I've seen this a few times. They centralize all the compute and data. Yeah. Which university was this again? Washington University in St. Louis. Washington. Okay. So had they, had they just started building the infrastructure to centralize all this computing and, and storage when you got there or were they, Already in the middle. We hadn't of it. even started yet. They were they were still in the um, initial planning stages. Um, so now they, this isn't know. much of a programming job. This is now more of a. I don't want to use the word IT, but it, it, it this is more of an integration sort of. Yeah, well, like I, I, I initially that's the way that it that it started out, and then it was like, oh, well, we need um, software engineers because we need people that can get researchers applications onto the compute cluster um so that they could be able to use them right so then we're having to so i remember the, the actually the, the the very first one that i got was from someone from the mcdonald uh, genome institute and he brought me an application a web application mind you that was written solely in Perl, and i was like what in the world is this <laughs> it reads what nice is though. This? Yeah, like, do this, do this, do this, and do this, and do this. And I was like, uh, there are no functions here? Like, what language is this? And he was like, it's Perl. And I was like, why did you write it in Perl? And he was like, because that's the language that I write in. Okay. I can't argue with that. Like, so so then it became one of those things where we were actually taking applications and and converting them over so we could get them on the compute. Yeah, you were almost 
doing containerization without the word containerization. You had to bundle these apps and get them to run on that compute power in some form. Like you're kind of solving those problems. How long are you with the the university? I, I imagine the speed of the university was right up your alley. It yeah. wasn't really chaotic. Things had to be properly sort of scoped and planned and checked. I, I imagine you really you enjoyed it there. Yeah, yeah, I I I loved it. Um, so I was on there for uh, a year and a couple of months before I actually got. That's when I got the uh, another LinkedIn message that led me to HashiCorp. So, but you're happy there, so. And you're not using HashiCorp products at the university, are you? So how do you know about HashiCorp and why leave? I I wanted to to improve as an engineer and a lot of the things that, because let, let's face it, like the applications that we were converting, a lot of them were kind of CRUD applications that I could very quickly like get a Ruby application in a couple of days that did exactly what they wanted. Um, and, and like I wanted a different engineering experience. I knew that there was, it was like music where it's like, there's levels, right? Like you think you're good and then you go someplace else and you realize that no, you are not, <laughs> you are not good at all. Like you are maybe mid-grade at best. So like I wanted to bring up the level of, of, of engineering and knew that staying at that point was, was I was gonna do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, so. But how did you know about the, excellence of engineering at HashiCorp. Like, how did you know that place was the next level in terms of engineering? We had started to use, um, we had started to make the switch from Ansible and and and, and like that whole stack. And, and we started to use, uh, that's the first kind of foray into Terraform. And so like I started to do some more research on HashiCorp and then realized that like maybe this would work i don't know if i'm good enough to get in there but like maybe this this could work out and again it just happened to be one of those things where uh i got a message from a recruiter her name is lauren actually uh and but i was i was going to apply for something i just didn't know what at that point and i think maybe she had she had you know seen in the people that like looked at her profile that i had looked at her profile and so she reached out to me so yeah, so if I work at HashiCorp after listening to this, I'm going to like have you shut down your LinkedIn for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, that's that's I, I, good. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't need you to get solicited anymore for a little while here. How was the interview at HashiCorp? Were you, and I'm just going to say this, Don, because I feel like we're friends now, right? right you always right. put yourself in this sort of like, I'm not good enough mode or not i'm not going to succeed yet you've never failed in anything you've ever wanted to do when you really step back and think about it i re and if you haven't i want you to step back and think about it right i mean at least the story that we're telling that you've never failed in anything that you've really wanted to do so but what the cool thing is is that even though you've got this sort of negativity going on i'm not good enough you do it anyway and then you end up succeeding so was it the same kind of, I'm going to do it anyway, but I know I'm not good enough to be at HashiCorp, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Because um, <laughs> uh, uh, like the, the interview process is different than any other interview process that I've ever done because, uh, you know, honestly, they didn't ask me a lot of, of, they didn't give me a data structures and algorithms interview, right? Like this was 
Chris, my manager, what he exactly what he told me was, I don't care if you don't know everything because nobody does. Um, we can teach you the tech and forgive my language, but his exact words were, um, we cannot teach you not to be an asshole because nobody wants to work with one. And, and, you know, like it really kind of hit me because like, I'm trying to prepare for like, learn every single thing that I can about um, HashiCorp and all the products. And he was like, stop. So that's kind of my de facto. When I get something new is attempt to learn everything that I can, every single bit. And he was like, I can tell you're stressing yourself out. We need to calm down. Like, it's not that sort of interview. Um, obviously we need to know that you've done something. Yes. Um, but it's more about like, can you fit the team culture and are you teachable? Right. Like, cause if you think you come in here and you think you know everything, then there's not much I can do for you here. Right. Cause again, Terraform and all of the other products are huge. Like these are humongous code bases that take so much context loading that it's impossible for even Matt, right. That we talked about earlier for him to know every single thing. Right. But um, are you teachable? And so the interview process consisted of like, I think it was one day with three people and it was one of them that was kind of technical. They wanted to know kind of what your cloud experience was. And then another one was, uh, they asked me a couple of go questions, but it was nothing that wasn't Googleable at the, at that very moment. And then the next one was, uh, a, like a personality one. And that was the one that lasted the longest. They really wanted to pull out to see how you respond in certain situations. And they would ask you questions that will not allow you to do that, right? <laughs> they're not going to allow you to prepare for this. Yeah. I just told somebody, too, because they're going to interview on Friday. And I said, I expect knowing the people that are at this company that don't worry about the technical part of any of this interview. I know they're going to just double check that you've written a for loop before. But right. knowing this group, they're going to want to make sure that you're not a vampire, like you don't suck all the happiness out of a room when you're in it. And, but how great would it be to just be able to ask the question in it? Like, are you an asshole? Let's just start like first question. In it. Are you an asshole? Just let me know right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I fix a, a whole lot of things. And then like, it's, it's, it was one of those things too, where the reason why it was so different, the reason why like, I really like the, even though it has its, its, its issues, I really like this because it does get to like the root of who someone is as an engineer and tries to pull those insights out rather than, you know, do you know the most complex things about Go, right? Like, cause that, again, that can be taught. It can like, so if you're willing to learn that can be taught. So it just makes it so that you have good teams that can work together. Cause again, like there's, there's more technical experience um, than any place else that I've ever worked on, on my, on my team now, right? Like some of these people have been around, um, they probably forgotten more than I currently know. So, uh, having that experience with them is, is, is awesome. Yeah. You spend more time with these people on your team than you probably do anyone else, maybe outside of a weekend. And so if your life is going to be miserable because they're there and they're like, you just don't want to add that to it. I think enough companies have learned that already. Right. So that's awesome. And you've been now, so you've been there now for over a year. I can't remember. Yeah. It's, it's about a year and a half. About a year and a half. Uh Oh, it's a year and a half. Everybody start shutting down <laughs> the LinkedIn. <laughs> I, I imagine that you're happy there. The pace is right for you. 
you uh, you have a kind of a clear view on what you're working on every every day, every week. And like I'm learning, like it, it's because uh, again, the engineering level did that it, it did kick up, right? Like, uh, in just in terms of scale. Uh, so like my understanding was not any. There are some things that I can't just straight up Google, like I could, uh, you know, at, at previous jobs. So uh, it's made me want to. Um, go back to school and actually do a uh, a bachelor's in, in computer science just to kind of get that to kind of get that uh, kind of get that depth. How many semesters are you in? I I have three more left. So so I, but I'm actually gonna, I'm actually going to bump to just doing it in the summers just so I'm not so overburdened during the year. But yeah, what where where are you doing that? What university? College? Are you doing that? At? Uh, University of Illinois. Yeah, University of Illinois. Wow. They have an, like an online program. So that's amazing, dude. I, I don't know how you have time to go to school. Basically, I mean, it's not full time, obviously, but still, you're going to school. You're working full time. You still have to find time for your kids, obviously, and then your music because you're still playing. And you said when we started that you're you were teaching. You what? What are you doing right now with your music? Remind me. Oh yeah, I'm the fill-in for uh, the St. Louis Symphony. Um, so I, I I I still teach a couple of kids lessons, but at this point, it's maybe you know once a month or so. And then the fill-in is like, you're lucky enough to play once a once a month, or you just never know. During a given yearly concert cycle, I probably play twice. Um, so this I, is what I'm wondering. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make a prediction here, Don. Okay. A long-term prediction, because you're young. At some point, let's say if we're lucky enough, when you get into your 50s, you're going to retire from tech. You're going to be done with tech. And you're going to go back. Your kids are going to be old already. They're going to be out of the house. They're going to be university, right? Got another 15, 20 years there. Uh, and you're going to get back into playing in some sort of orchestra or, or, or symphony. I think that's how you, you're going to things, things happen in these sort of cycles. So you're going to do like <laughs> yeah. 20, 20 years here. You're going to do, you're going to give tech 25 years and then you're going to get back to playing. So don't stop playing because that's, you're going to, and don't stop reading music. Like you don't want to lose that time either. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I still play in church. So like on Sundays I, I play organ. So, uh, so you know how to play the keyboard. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, that's an instrument you picked up along the way or you you've always had that mapped in your head it was my second year at uh like i had always kind of like fiddled with piano but like again my reading was was such that i had to do everything by ear but once i got to the point after that first year past um getting beat on by sergeant whitlock um i found that like playing organ and piano was immensely easier because like now i can read everything like i'm not i'm not struggling to do anything oh so you can read oh so i might change my prediction now i think you're going to be one of those uh entertainers i see on the cruise ships for like a year <laughs> That's it, right? i would do it i would definitely do it yeah i see some amazing musicians they just get up to the the piano and they just start playing and they they play with the song and the melodies it's absolutely amazing to me like how talented some of these musicians are on these cruise ships. There it is, man. It's joy. Well, we are, unfortunately, we're out of time, dude. What a, 
I know I, I spent a lot of time with you in the uh, in the army and stuff, but I found that fascinating. Uh, I, I did. If anybody else did, I don't even care. I I did. I found it fascinating. <laughs> and then how you somehow transitioned from a life of music into now being an engineer at HashiCorp, right? And it just proves to everybody that's listening: there's no one path. There's no computer science necessarily path. It's it, it's everybody has a different path to get where they're going. And, and I love how you just felt it out along the way. And, and now Dom, I think it's time for you to start just always saying, Hey, you know what? I am good enough. I can do that. I've never failed before, so I'm not going to fail now. And, um, I can't wait to see, uh, see what, what you, what your career looks like over the next five, 10 years. I'm going to be retired by then on a boat in Miami. So you can visit me on my boat and we'll Don't talk about up. it. <laughs> Don't look me up. All right. If anybody wants to get in touch with you um, and ask any questions about the episode, what's the best way for them to reach out? Twitter's fine. It's just uh, at Dom underscore Hallen. Or you can email me at uh, Dom at DomHallen.com. Brilliant. We've got it. We'll get that in the show notes. All right. So this is Bill Kennedy and Don Hallen saying thank you for joining us today. And we hope to see everybody again real soon.